Father, we thank you for this oasis in our desert, this, this place that is the Sabbath day, this place that is your day of rest and worship, your people that we can rest and worship with, and encourage us and help us to encourage one another. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Meredith and I, as you well know, uh, just took some time away. We did a couple of weeks in Uganda, and I'll give a little bit of an update another time on that one. But we also did this 10-day tour of Egypt. It was our This year is our 30th anniversary, and figured we're already getting the plane tickets paid for, so let's tack on this really cool bucket list trip. And we viewed Egypt from all the way at the top in Abu Simbel, all the way down to the Mediterranean at the city of Alexandria. And that involved a couple of domestic flights. So on one of our flights, we are sitting, there's three seats together. I'm sitting by the window, Meredith sitting in the middle seat, and Meredith doing what she always does, ends up becoming best friends with this young lady who's sitting next to her from China. And so the young lady's name is Zoe, and of course Meredith being who she is, by the time that we got off the plane, we were taking selfies, and she was crying at the thought of leaving us, and determining that she's going to come visit us here in D.C., and all of that normal stuff that is the burden of my life. But at one point, Zoe asked, and, and so I, I want you to put yourself in her mind, in, in her shoes. This is a young girl from China. English is a fairly new language for her. She has absolutely no background in Christian religion. She has no background in the church at all. And she's taking this tour in which she's seeing a lot of Coptic churches, Because Egypt, 10% of the uh, country, is Coptic. And so she asks Meredith, what is the difference between Coptic Christianity and everything else? What, What I know as Christians, either Roman Catholics or evangelicals or whatever. What, what, What is it about the Copts that makes them different? And so Meredith, being who she is, uh, turned to me, who was not paying any attention to the conversation at all, and said, Phil, why don't you answer that question? And so off the top of my head, I had to give this little five-minute speech about what the difference is between Coptic Christianity and what we would consider historic uh, Orthodox Christianity. And I noticed as I was giving this little speech that like four or five rows around us went completely quiet and were listening to my speech. And I'm not sure it's because I was brilliant by any stretch, but I think it's because everybody wonders, (laughs) especially if you're going to Egypt (laughs) and you just haven't really done any study of theology or church history. Why Copts? Why Coptic Christianity? And so partially... This is further reflection on Zoe's question. Uh, we gave her the uh, address to our website and told her uh, I'm actually preaching through Exodus right now. 
a lot of Egyptian themes uh, involved in Exodus, but uh, if she so chooses, she can look up the Sunday school class and uh, get a more full answer to the question of why cops? What is the difference between cops and everybody else? So here's a quick thumbnail sketch. And we begin with Rome, Constantinople, Egypt, and Syria. That's the ancient world as we know it. Someone turn to Acts chapter 11 and read verses 19 through 30, please. Acts 11, nineteen to thirty. Yeah, keep going. Okay, so pause right there. So why is Antioch historically such an important place in the story of the early church? What is introduced to Christianity at Antioch? The word started with an H. The Hellenists. It's at Antioch that the Gospel is no longer exclusively being preached to Jews, but it's also bringing the Hellenists in, the Greeks. They're bringing Greek people into the church. Now, this will lead on to Acts 15 and the question, do these Greek converts have to keep the Jewish ceremonial law or not? So so it becomes a problem right out of the gate as we figure out how Jew and Gentile together make up this new body. But here is where it all begins. It begins in Antioch when the Hellenists come in. And it's there that we first take the label Christian. So every Christian ever since, in the history of the church, that's where your mothership is. It's that church in Antioch and the Greeks, the Hellenists, coming in and creating this new body. Now, the problem with... Okay, let me 
let's uh, ask this question another way. When someone has grown up in a dysfunctional house, maybe their parents are divorced, or their parents are not Christians, uh, their parents are good people, but, but the gospel, church, Christianity is just not in their background. They come to Jesus Christ. Are they, from day one, going to completely understand what a biblical lifestyle looks like? Not at all. <laughs> They're going to bring a lot of their own worldview in. They're going to bring a lot of their own baggage in. Now, to try to get you to stick with me on this, because I think this is cool stuff, have you ever noticed the type of art that you see in Greek Orthodox cathedrals, churches, settings? Have you ever noticed the types of paintings? Icons. Do you ever look at those and think, wow, they're really bad artists. This person doesn't look like he's standing on his own two feet. His feet are like pointing down and it looks like he's floating or something. It looks like some weird South Park mashup of, of what the human figure is supposed to look like. It, it's a very non-realistic art. We agree? Versus a Roman Catholic cathedral. Go to look at the stained glass windows in, in a Roman Catholic place. Look at Roman Catholic art. Look at their, 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 their favorite piece of art is a crucifix. The Jesus who hangs on that crucifix does he look like a real human being? Absolutely. You can see the ribs, you can see the, the art, Western art, is very, very realistic. Greek art, Orthodox cathedrals, Coptic cathedrals, the art is not realistic at all. So if you know anything about your, your experience in looking at pictures or visiting different historic places, you know that there's a difference between these two forms of art. Is it just that Orthodox people, when we developed Orthodoxy, we lost all the good artists, they all stayed with Rome, and we got all the bad ones, or they got all the bad ones, whichever. No, there's a different mindset. They're accomplishing two very, very different things in their art. And here is where the problem begins. <laughs> How did they end up with such very different... By the way, the capital of Egypt at this point in time is the city of Alexandria. And Alexandria begins under... Alexander the Great, uh, but pretty quickly it becomes a, a Roman uh, thing. You think of Cleopatra and her famous love affair with Mark Antony and, and all of that. Alexandria is a Western Roman city, and Antioch 
And Syria never is. Antioch in Syria always has this Eastern mindset. And Constantinople Constantinople we'll get into possibly in a second. Uh, possibly I may not get done with this today. But Constantinople tries to bridge the two. Constantinople tries to bring these two very different worldviews together. And what they do in Constantinople is the Council of Constantinople, which meets in 381, held by the Emperor Justinian and the Empress Theodora, uh, they try to come up with a formulation that will pull these two very different worldviews into one body. And what they do is they officially declare a statement of faith that is found on page 852 in your hymnal, the Nicene Creed. This is after the, the, the Council of Nicaea, but this is a summary of what the Council of Nicaea all agreed on. And they make the Nicene Creed to be an official document of the Christian church. And that's the point at which you have this division between the two groups of people. Now the question is, why are these two groups of people unable to get along with each other? Why is there this division at all to begin with? And it goes back... Those of you who have read any philosophy, might be able to finish this statement for me. All philosophy, all Western philosophy, is a footnote to two great philosophers. Who are those two great philosophers? Plato and Aristotle. And every story of philosophy, Western philosophy, ever since has been people essentially being Aristotelian or people essentially being Platonic. These two very different worldviews. And here's where it comes down into practice. The question is, how can I know what is good? How can I live a life that is a life that is good? How can I see good in others? I want a life under the, under the glory of Christ, under the power of His Holy Spirit, guided by His Word. I want to do what is good. I don't want to do what is bad. And so how do I know what is good? How do I connect with God? Is, is your relationship with Jesus Christ, here, here's a, here's a easy test for you. Is your relationship with Jesus Christ, knowing every Bible verse, knowing all of the catechism questions and answers, knowing systematic theology, the more that you know these things, does it necessarily mean the more like Christ you will be? No, absolutely not. 
you can know everything that there is to know about God. And James says, the demons also believe (laughs) and tremble. You say you have faith, show me your faith by your works. And so that becomes, how do we live in what is good? How do we do what is good? How do we know what is good? How does my heart change according to what is good? And he gets down to Plato and Aristotle. Plato argues that the good, and so when I say good, I'm, I'm meaning everything good, every, this, this purity, this holiness, this walking like God wants me to walk, engaging with my wife, engaging with a young lady, engaging with a young man, engaging with my children, engaging in my work, driving down the street, someone fl- uh, cutting me off, and, and what is my response to it as, as I'm driving? All of these things that we know, how should we live the good that, that Christ has brought, Christ has transformed, how do we live what is good and live the life that is good? Both of these people are asking that very important question. And so the first part of that question is, How do we engage the good? Now, you could blow me off and you could say by reading your Bible. But again, you can read your Bible from sun up to sun down and go straight to hell. You can, you can be a, a scholar of the Word of God and be an absolute son or daughter of Satan. Uh, you, Satan knew the Bible backwards and forwards and he used it in the temptation of Jesus Christ. Uh, you can know intellectually, but there's some change of heart. It's a mystery. It's a very mysterious thing. I mean, Jesus says to Nicodemus, you must be born again. And Nicodemus goes, I have no idea what you're talking about. Uh, uh, Isaiah, I believe it is, or Jeremiah, one of those two prophets. Can can the uh, can the leopard change its spots? Can the Ethiopian change his skin? Yet God will do that work. I will take out the heart of stone and I will replace it with a heart of flesh. There's got to be this connection with what is truly perfectly holy and good. And Plato will say of material things. So, people... and trees... and flowers... all of these things that we see in the world around us, they're all going to be broken. Like, are you ever going to see a truly perfect, beautiful flower? Probably not. It's going to have some bit of discoloration. It's going to have some piece of wilt on one of its leaves. Even if you just leave it alone, after a day, it's clearly no longer perfect. You you can search for the perfect flower, but there's always going to be something imperfect about it. You can search for the perfect tree, but there's always going to be something that just isn't quite right. The perfect person, uh, it, 
there, there are always going to be something that just isn't quite right about it. And so Plato says, these things exist so that we can look through them to the good. So the good is going to be primarily accessed through meditation, contemplation. You remember the story of the early church, all those hermits that sealed themselves into caves, Simon the Stylite who clambers up a pillar and camps out on top of a pillar for the rest of his life. Do you hear those kinds of stories happening in Rome? They all happen around Egypt. They all happen around Syria. (laughs) They are all people who are passionately pursuing the good, and they're doing so to come away from the world. Is that the universal wristwatch signal? Oh, that was genuinely just scratching your wrist. (laughs) Uh, so, so So when you think of art... When you think of Orthodox art, when you think of Greek Orthodox or Coptic art, that's why they don't look realistic. They don't want you to think that they're the real thing. They want you to look through this in meditation. The the art of the icon, the art of the Greek Orthodox Church, the art of the Coptic Church does not look like things that you see. The people don't look like people that would be walking down the street. The the trees and flowers and all of that, they don't look like trees and flowers that you would see around the street. And it's not because they're bad artists. It's because they're trying to help you as the Christian, help you look through these things and contemplate the divine. Does that make sense? Aristotle is totally the opposite. Aristotle says that all these things of trees and flowers, all of these things, the only way that you and I can know what is good The only way that you and I can engage the good is by seeing the reflection of the good in these things. So if you are a philosophy nerd, uh, the, the Aristotle's epistemology is that the transcendent is instantiated in the particular. Uh, the, the, the good <clears throat> becomes accessible through the things that we see around us, the people that we see around us, the trees, the flowers, the things that we see. That's how you can know what is good. Imperfectly, yes, but that's why you need a whole bunch of them and you need to be careful to sort out what is good and what is bad and, and those sorts of things, not find your ultimate meaning. That's the problem of idolatry. Idolatry, we find our ultimate 
value in the thing. And we forget that the thing is just an imperfect instantiation of the good. Uh, and, and so the problem of idolatry, and that's at least one thing that Orthodox and, and Coptic Christians, uh, idolatry has not been, well, it's been a different problem in a different way. But in terms of physical representations and, and putting up little things on the shelf uh, to, to offer prayers before each morning, that's more an Aristotelian problem than it is a Platonic problem. Uh, but these are two very, very different worldviews. And they come into conflict in early church theology. Uh, you, you, and, and so that's part of the problem, is you've got this, this conflict between Plato and Aristotle that gets brought into the church. You've also got a language problem. Uh, everybody's speaking Latin except all the people from Syria and Antioch and, and those places, and they're speaking an ancient form of Greece, a Greek. Uh, so, so they are, they're doing theology in Greek, whereas other people are doing theology in Latin. And so you can imagine that if you were having an argument with someone whose primary language is Arabic, and it takes you two or three months to get your response to his point over to him, and then he's got to translate it, and then he writes his response, and it takes another two or three months to get it back to you, and you've got to translate it. There's a lot that gets missed. There's an awful lot that gets dropped <laughs> in that in that bizarreness. And so you have a lot of people that are speaking past each other. They're 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 talking past each other because of a language gap. They're talking past each other because of this fundamental difference between Aristotelian, where the reality is in the particulars. The many are found in the, the one is found in the many. The one is found in the, the, the many versus Platonism, where the many, M-A-N-Y, the many are pointing us through the many to the one. Uh, and, and so you've got this difference in worldview, and you can see it in the difference in art. Uh, you can you can see it in the difference in theology. So that's kind of how this whole division opens up. Now, just quickly, I actually have three minutes left. Um, the way that this all became a problem <laughs> was the Emperor Justinian. Uh, and, and the Byzantine Empire, this is a, a area of study that I've been fascinated with for years. Uh, it, it's, it's one of the largest and longest lasting empires, and almost nobody knows anything about it. Uh, the Byzantine Empire ruled the world uh, for over a thousand years. And we kind of know about it from, you know, intellectually, but, but we've... There's not a lot of rich, deep, at least on my side, from my end. It's not something that I really can say I've, I've got my brain as, as drenched with as I do Western theology. But the Byzantine Empire, I think its greatest leader was the Emperor Justinian, who was married to the Empress Theodora. 
They were married and ruled together for 25 years. She died from cancer. He spent the next 20 years every single day taking flowers to her grave uh, as he continued his rule. Uh, so, so this was a couple that deeply, deeply loved each other. He, both of them were absolutely brilliant uh, in terms of the expansion of the empire, administrative stuff, but Theodora did not agree with Justinian <clears throat> on this issue, on how do we know what is good. And Theodora was much more influenced by the Greek uh, theologians that, that, that were there and, and offered her counsel, whereas Justinian was influenced more by Aristotelian logic and the Roman mindset, because Constantinople was Rome. It was New Rome. Constantine, when he became a Christian, moved the capital uh, to Constantinople. This was New Rome. And this was where the, the uh, kingdom of Christ was going to be lived, and etc. So Justinian and his lovely bride, who he adored with all his heart, really didn't agree on this one. And so Just, Justinian made... The Nicene Creed, the official creed of the Christian church, and Theodora almost instantly started undermining him. <laughs> so that when Justinian wanted to send priests to Egypt, as he was taking over Egypt, as he was conquering and going up the Nile, and he wanted to send priests along they would have been Nicene priests. They would have been Aristotelian in their, in their thinking. Theodora saw an important part of the empire that was forever going to be lost, and so she slipped ahead and sent a bunch of priests who rejected the Council of Constantinople. And they ended up forming a completely different church that became known as the Coptic church. And the reason is because the Nicene Creed that you see on page 842, I think it is, very clearly says that Jesus is fully God and fully man. And the Platonic idea just has a problem with that. The idea that the holy, perfect, pure, good God had bowel movements. Just doesn't sound right. It sounds disgusting. It just, it doesn't sound right. Uh, that, that, you know, there, there are these things that are related to humanity that we just feel kind of icky about. Certainly not thinking of Jesus in those settings. And, and so they really didn't like that language of fully God and fully man. It just felt unspiritual. Between the language conflict, it never really got worked out. And then you add thousands of years of history, and our identity is all wrapped up in this thing, and it ends up with what the Coptic church is today. It started, I think, from a misunderstanding. 
It started from a language barrier, but it also started from all philosophy (laughs) is a footnote to Plato and Aristotle. And that bringing in of the Hellenists in Acts chapter 11, the formation of this new body of Christ, immediately they start asking these questions between Aristotle and Plato. And it ends up becoming something that today you can see orthodox theology, you can see orthodox and Coptic art, and you can see very, very different art than what you see when you go to a Roman Catholic place uh, or or think of Roman Catholic art. One looks very realistic. It's an extension of Aristotelianism. The other looks very otherworldly, and it's an extension of the Platonic uh, ideal. And that's how we ended up in Egypt with a bunch of Coptic cathedrals. So, (laughs) it is how, I guess, you know, my immediate thought is, okay, why? Why did we just do all this? Uh, And I think it's helpful for us to understand kind of a bit of what some of our fathers and mothers wrestled with in terms of how to apply what we know about God to the world around us. It's a warning, you know, as easily as we can stand off and go, oh, this is an epistemological conflict uh, that is imported into the scriptures and there's a language barrier here that exacerbated it and there's not a lot of trust and, and collegiality uh, amongst you folks. You're, you're always looking to fight over something. Let's take that and maybe learn from it. Uh, let, let's not just do the same thing in our own day. Uh, let, let's, let's be a lot more passionate for the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace than necessarily for the precision of my particular argument when I'm not sure I've heard yours well enough <laughs> to be writing or I'm not sure you've heard mine well enough to be writing. Uh, I think at the very least we can see in these men and women that, and, and you know, these are folks that are getting martyred. At the same time, so let's not let's not uh, look down our noses too much at them. Uh, the, these are these are the heroes of the faith, uh, but men and women like us that are are broken and need to we we can learn from, learn through, both to emulate and to avoid. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Uh, These are are harmonized in in God's word and through uh, God. Our imperfection means it'll it'll be sometime in eternity when we get all this nailed down. (laughs) Laurie? Exactly. 
So that is a really good question. What exactly do the Coptics believe about Jesus Christ and the Trinity? And part of that is, well, the, the, the easiest and most accurate answer is it all depends. Uh, <laughs> um, the Copts and the Orthodox, Greek Orthodox, they divided over the issue of the uh, uh, hypostatic union. Uh, in Jesus Christ is fully God. Jesus Christ is fully man. And yet these two people these two fully full natures are brought together in one person without mixing one or the other. He's not a man who became God. He's not deity that got clothed in flesh. He's fully man, just like you and me. And at the same time, he's fully God. And how we get our brains wrapped around that is something that the church has never really done well. Uh, all we can say is fully God and fully man, one person. That's, that's the best, that's the closest we can get. That's what Westminster says. But fully God and fully man, when we try to articulate, okay, how did that happen? Then the cops are going to say, the, the Coptic Church would write capital F, capital G, fully God, small f, small m, <laughs> fully man. They would agree he's fully man, but the emphasis is going to be on the fully God. The Roman Church, the what what is passed down all the way through the Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed, the three forms of unity, the Westminster Confession, is going to say, we've got to keep both of those letters capital. He is fully God, and he is fully man. To, to de-emphasize the full humanity of Jesus Christ, Romans chapter 5 tells us, puts you in peril of salvation. Because Adam was certainly fully man. And in him, sin entered the world. The second Adam has to be fully man as well. In order for salvation to enter in. In order for him to undo what the first Adam did. And so that's Paul's argument in Romans 5. Is that he must be fully man. As well as fully God. In order to be the second Adam. And, and the Coptic Greek Orthodox Church feels uncomfortable with that a little bit. As I said, the idea that Jesus Christ had bowel movements just feels a little not spiritual. They do. But are we going to say with all of the infirmities common to man? With all of the temptations common to man? And they would say, eh, no, not completely. Uh, yeah, did, did he have, did he have cavities? Did he, did he ever break a tooth as he was eating a bowl of rice and there was a pebble in it? Uh, do you think maybe he had a missing or broken front tooth? Like 
everybody else in that day had. Uh, the, the Greek Orthodox, the Coptic, would feel very uncomfortable making that kind, or having that kind of a vision of Jesus Christ. Whereas the Aristotelian would say, absolutely, he had to be like others. And and that's right. And it's absolutely unique. It's absolutely unique to Jesus. That's right. Nobody else has been born of a virgin. And and so he becomes the absolute difference in all of that. But I have gotten the waving wrist now. So let me uh, close in prayer, and we can go to our time of fellowship. Father, we thank you that. All of our questions will be answered one day, and they'll all be answered by us throwing our crowns at the feet of Jesus Christ and just praising and exploring more of your beautiful character. Help us to have that focus towards you and towards one another. In Christ's name.